Hey, it's G3, and while my voice may sound gravelly, I am pleased to be sitting down with Weiss's Jordi Visser today to talk about how he's looking at the markets. In recent months, Jordi has made no secret of his view that risk assets could end the year higher. And that position has put Jordi wildly outside of the consensus, which is a place he's comfortable in and has been in before. But so far, that call hasn't worked out. So today, we'll dive into his reasoning and rationale and put that in the context of AQ, Behavioral Alpha, and Speed Chess, all in this episode of Green Marbles. And if you could, please tell someone you know about the show and check out important disclosures at the end of the episode. We'd appreciate it, and welcome. All right, we are recording. Jordy, great to see you. G3, always a pleasure. You look good, back from Italy, and in the Big Apple. Let's dig in, because there's a lot to discuss, given the volatility of the markets as of late. You, of course, have been an outspoken outlier, if we could say that, when it comes to your view on how equities, crypto, and risk assets will perform this year. And while the overwhelming majority of strategists, analysts, talking heads on television, and indeed some high-profile investors have been calling for more doom and gloom as far as the eye can see, you have said repeatedly that risk assets are potentially going to finish the year up higher. But as we now approach the end of Q2, I am wondering if you want to update and share how you think things are now. Do you feel like you have been wrong? Or is this just a question of the timing of your call? So please take it away. <laughs> well, first of all, I don't believe in hiding behind the timing of a call. <laughs> Even if, which at this point, the probabilities have gone down significantly from when I first said this, just because a time is running out, even though we still have half a year left, but also because prices have gone lower. I'm wrong every single year on something. Last year, I famously was predicting that Brazil and EWZ specifically would be the best performing market in the world, and it was the worst. Now, it's very hard to be more wrong than that. I don't think I've been more wrong than that this year. But definitely calling for the markets to be up on the year, and I didn't say potentially at any point. I said I think they will be up on the year by the end of the year. That was predicated on a very simple belief, which I still have at this point, which I'm sure we'll get into, which is that the inflation debate, which really started in 2020, accelerated or started to get more people on board in the midpoint of last year, and now has gone to the point where... If everyone who's an inflationista was on the boat, I would be the only person on the other side. <laughs> At this point, I really don't know many people out there who think inflation, and I'll say has peaked in the US, at least for core CPI, which peaked in March. We might get higher levels, but not with the growth slowdown that keeps going on. The peak inflation part is where I thought the market would start to act differently, and it hasn't. And if anything, the Fed, especially recently with the 75 basis point rate rise, 
is raising rates at an incredibly fast pace now for the rest of the year into a slowdown that's becoming more and more obvious. And so I understand why people have become more bearish. But in terms of me, I still think by the end of the year, it's a mistake right now for people to focus more on the negative than the positive. And I'm sure we'll get into reasons why, but I'm still believing that people should be investing money in Bitcoin and in risk assets at this level, even though as of right now, it's been the wrong thing to say. And what are the pieces of data you're looking at to inform what I would call kind of an underlying confidence that even if so far your call has been wrong, you still believe that ultimately risk assets are going to perform much better in H2. Before I get into that, since we're going to keep using the word wrong for me, I, I just want to <laughs> emphasize a point. Our job in this business is not to be right or wrong. We talk a lot about Bayesian. We talk a lot about distributions and risk reward. Our job is to maximize returns and minimize losses when we are wrong. All of us are wrong batters are wrong 65% of the time in the Hall of Fame. Right. Uh, those are the best ones. Those are wrong. the best ones. And even field goal kickers who drive us nuts are right usually 90% of the time. I, I call them the arbitrageurs. So they're in trades that they want to make money all the time. When you're trying to predict where markets are going to go, if you can be right on that even 55% of the time, and I don't mean on a daily basis, I mean just in general, but you pick your points at the right time, the risk reward is going to be in your favor and you have to be disciplined to not getting panicky. And that's one of the important things. Now, in terms of indicators that I'm watching, so if this is peak inflation or it's coming up in the next two months, so we are getting closer to where a lot of people are looking for the cliff of inflation to come in. You're going to see this in the market. So I believe that indicators, as you call them, are just asset prices starting to discount it. And I'm seeing some of those now. One of the most powerful things that I saw last week that I want to see if it continues, and we are at quarter end for the first half of the year, so you get a lot of positioning, jockeying that might be going on. So I don't treat short-term nuances and divergences as important, is credit. Credit is probably the most important thing right now. And if we can see yields on investment grade out to seven years peak around 5% and start to find some stability, which we have seen post the Fed. And if you remember, we talk a lot here about looking for divergences related to the reaction rather than the narrative. And I think we're seeing initially, and again, it may be quarter end, some divergences with inside credit, with inside the dollar some of the places that have led initially, and then some other places with inside the equity market. I watch inflation-sensitive things versus margin squeeze-sensitive things. We've seen that all of a sudden come down sharply as of when I came in here. The index that I do watch for it had given back over 50% of the gains for the year and was approaching the 200-day moving average, which would say that the inflation versus margin squeeze, which had been working since 2020, is almost down through its 200-day moving average, and it's back to a level in February. All that's happened after a peak in early June, which, again, is a divergence that's saying that people that have been more focused on inflation should stop worrying about one of two things, peak inflation and or a recession. The market is starting to seem to shift more towards that direction, and that's what the indicators are telling me now. You also mentioned to me related to 
the EU and Italy. And even though you were in Italy last week, it didn't have to do with the lovely affordable meals that you had. It had to do with how the EU responded when spread started widening out. Could you just talk about that? Because I think this is a very interesting point. Yeah. Again, this gets into this concept of academics and forecasting inflation and what the Fed should do. There's a lot of narratives surrounding academics. And as I've told you many times, I didn't enjoy school. I was definitely not interested in it as a young age. And the reason was because I preferred to learn from a variety of different places and not from one book. So when I hear the academics, there's two things that people don't talk about anymore that they used to talk about a lot. One was the debt bubble, which I wrote a paper about. And Italy fits right in that category where the EU was in the midst of a true event. And as I mentioned, a true event. I was part of emerging markets in the 90s with LTCM. That was a true deleveraging event. I was involved in the great financial crisis, a true deleveraging event where the banks were going under. And then another deleveraging risk, which was the EU breakup. Since then, I'm not worried about deleveraging events. We have printing presses and we've proven that. What we're trying to figure out now is whether we can get inflation under control. Part of that is the Paul Volcker, we need to raise rates really violently. But the other thing is the debt bubble is still there. And what the ECB did last week was acknowledge that they might have to do something to keep Italy in okay. All the work they did. And I think that's why I brought up the investment grade yields at 5%. At some point, this becomes an issue for growth because we have 256 plus percent of debt to GDP and debt does not go away. You can print money, you can print money, you can print money, you can get inflation, but the debt doesn't leave and that will eventually act as a governor on the economy, as I've mentioned. The second thing is we've forgotten about technological innovation. And last year, everyone who was debating me on inflation was focused on the fact that no, technology is here, it drives prices lower, it's deflationary, we still have an acceleration of technology, look how big the sector is. Now, no one talks about that. The reality is it is true. It eventually will get things back in line. We've had COVID. We've had disruptions beyond belief. And I just think at this point, people have forgotten the debt. Italy's a warning sign to the central banks. And I think the housing market and the investment grade situation for corporate bonds and their ability to hire people is something for the Fed to deal with over the course of the next six months. So back to these shores, one of the data points that you have emphasized a couple of times on the morning meeting and in various things that you have written about and spoken about relates to how relatively rare it is for the S&P to finish a year lower by 20% or more. If we wind up being down by that much or more, how unusual will that be in the context of our market history? I think there's only been three years worse than this. It's three or four worse than where we are today. So if we closed here in the S&P, going back 80 years, which takes us back to World War II, this would be one of the top five worst years where it stands today. And that doesn't include more losses that people seem to think are going to come. So just from a pure probability basis, if a field goal kicker makes 76 of 80 chances, I don't know why people at least aren't concerned on the possibility that from here stocks could go up or not go down as much. Finishing up on the year is a lower likelihood, like I said, because of time and the price that has gone lower. But I don't think it's because of the narrative. And this is the thing I want to make sure because for people who are listening to these podcasts, I don't spend a lot of time on economic data. I use it as the backup to what the markets are saying. So I listen to the narratives of people 
to get sentiment, I look at the sentiment numbers that I see. So I have the luxury of talking to so many people in charge of so much money that I get to hear their concerns and their sentiment. And when the narratives at the conference I was just at in Europe, which were horrendous, where people entered my little booth wanting to hear something positive from anyone, I just know that the risk reward is skewed. And it's not just the price movements because that's not enough. It's the fact that what possible outcomes could actually make the market respond differently. A recession to me might actually be a positive at this point as long as it's a mild one and it doesn't cause problems. We already had a negative GDP quarter and we're on our pace right now for possibly another negative GDP quarter, which would be a recession in some people's definitions. But a slowdown is necessary. It is necessary to get the Fed off of the neck of the market. And the fact that everyone thinks that this is going to get worse opens up the opportunity for there to be positive sentiments at levels, which historically are positive. So I try to find places where the narrative is very different than what the assets are saying. And as I mentioned, the assets I'm saying are saying we shouldn't be focused on inflation. We should be focused right now on slower growth. It's only been three to four weeks on some of this, but I'm going to watch over the summertime because I think this pendulum shift has only started and I don't see how the growth picture is not going to worsen from here based on everything that seems to be happening in the data that comes out. We've had 10 weeks in a row where the city surprise index, which measures the data versus estimates, it's been weaker 10 weeks in a row. So there's no doubt in the U.S. that the economy is slowing, which we talked about back in May would happen. The question is, is this going to be a positive for the market? Or as the doom and gloomers are saying, will this make earnings fall dramatically and that'll move the S&P down to below 3,000, whatever the case is. Everyone seems to have a, a bearish narrative. I like the other side that there's a distribution here where peak inflation might be the most positive thing in that the market will look six to nine months from now through the slowdown and more towards the, this is not a deleveraging event and credit is not going to be a major issue. That's why I want to focus on credit. You mentioned that you talk to a lot of institutions, you talk to a lot of allocators as well. And those people of course are very, very sophisticated, very smart, and they're able to take a wider frame on things and look differently. Can you share how some of these people who you speak to are looking at things today? Yeah, actually, I had a conversation with arguably one of the most sophisticated allocators in the world, and I'll just use this example. So there is one place that more and more people are getting positive on, and we've talked about it on here for probably the last month or two, which is China. So the Chinese market, stock market locally, is, is acting much better. The Hong Kong market on the tech side is acting much better. We're approaching some important moving averages on those. Shenzhen Composite is closer to the 200-day moving average than it is the lows of the year. And the question that was posed to me is, our biggest risk in China is, can we actually invest there? Is it investable? We don't want to be trapped there. And they're thinking about the Russia situation, which I understand. They're thinking about if China invaded Taiwan, what would happen? So as an investor, the question to me was, if you had a 10-year time horizon, would you invest in China? And I thought it was a good question because they're so large that if they make a commitment to something on the private equity side or on the VC side or anything in China, they're viewing their money as to some degree, not being quick enough to move out. And I just said to them, I think 10 years is too long of a time for me to answer that. But I would say that for the next 
two to five years, I think you absolutely should be doing it. I think what they're doing there is going to continue to have a large impact on their stock market. Animal spirits, animal spirits, animal spirits. It's one of the dominant things that I'm focused on right now. It's the other reason why I'm not that I don't care as much about what people are saying about inflation here. Hong Kong had their CPI release this past week. It was 1.2%. There's a different story happening in Asia. And for the growth to come out of this, I do believe Asia has to be the growth story. So that's an indication of the way an allocator has to have a long-term time horizon, but also has to bring liquidity into the issue and potential disruptions and how it would look to them if they were there. And I think that's the sensitivity to people that got burned on Russia. But true of FAs as well, right? They're not investing for their clients for next quarter. They're thinking 10, 15, 20 years. But as you know, it's just so bloody difficult when you see a sea of red every day, if you're an FA, to have to deal with their clients calling up and saying, I thought you put me in good things. What is happening here? So let me just ask you, what advice can you give to those FAs out there who may say, Jordy makes a ton of sense. I really like his worldview. I like the fact that he is trying to understand what the markets are saying and not paying too much attention to narratives. How do you sort of tell them to stick with it? Because as you know, human psychology, unfortunately, is oftentimes a counterproductive trend. Okay. Plain and simplistically, the stock market was at all-time highs last year. And I only bring that up for this. You're getting a 20 to 25%, as much as 30% on some indices and probably 70% on some technology stocks that I know people loved not that long ago. You're getting an opportunity to invest. And if you're going to be around for a long time, which is the case with most investors, you have to take these opportunities to be putting money to work. And it doesn't matter if you're a little bit early, especially in this world of kind of speed chess that I've talked about, where cycles are shorter and sharper and sentiment changes more dramatically, partly because of the iPhone, but partly because we're in this scenario where we do have the ability of making the economy go up when we want vis-a-vis printing money. Inflation is the only thing this time that's changed that. So for the RAs and the FAs, I still violently believe in crypto as the next innovation to disrupt U.S. technology stocks. You're getting a chance to obviously buy the bigger cap U.S. tech stocks if you want. I'm more interested in the fact that crypto through Bitcoin and Ethereum is giving you a much better entry point than it was before. This is not some scam. This is not some bubble. This is a new innovation of the blockchain, which is just not stopped. So you're getting an opportunity. And by the time it goes the other direction, it'll go too fast. So for everyone who has money to invest for the next five to 10 years, they have to stop with the need for immediate gratification on things. It's the reason why human beings have such a hard time with diets. They know they should lose weight and they do it for one day, but then they look at the scale and nothing's changed. You can't do this with a short time horizon. And for investors right now, they have a great opportunity to put money to work. I, for all of my kids, my youngest is 16. We have talked about this a lot right now because whenever markets go down, I try to say to them, this is a great time for you to make more money. Don't spend any money and put it into the market because you're getting a discount on things that you don't get too often. And you just don't get too many years that are down this much. So rather than sit there and be scared of the fact that it might end up being down 40, if it goes down 40, put more money in. It's better than putting in at all-time highs. So if you were an institution tempted 
to deploy assets into crypto, even though it came with all sorts of complexities. But if you were tempted to deploy assets in crypto when it was at all-time highs, you should just finally get off the bench and do it now, correct? Yeah, and hope it goes lower. And hope it goes lower. Again, this is the beginning of an innovation that will dramatically change our world. It will be the next deflationary force. And if anything, we talked on this podcast last year about inflation structurally being higher. I did not anticipate the Fed getting this aggressive. Maybe, just maybe, we front-loaded all of that inflation stuff, the structurally higher inflation, into the short term. And maybe what the Fed has done will bring it back down to lower levels than we all think. It's definitely a part of the distribution of outcomes because I did not see the labor shortage situation working itself out because I didn't think they were going to do this aggressive. And I think you have to factor that in whatever your inflation forecast was, and mine was that we'd structurally be higher, I did not anticipate the Fed moving the Fed funds rate to as high as 3.5% before the end of this year, when at the beginning of the year it was expected to be 80 basis points at the end of this year. So maybe they front-loaded the inflation stuff into one year. All right. Well, let's conclude by talking about another of the pillars of your thinking, AQ or adversity quotient. As you have just said, you didn't anticipate the Fed to be as dogmatic as it has been. Markets, of course, have been brutally unpredictable this year. And as we've talked about before, your calls haven't played out. How do you, and by extension the firm, how do you get through periods like this? Well, again, everyone's wrong. The key thing is to remain and be adaptive. When I wrote the paper, Adapt or Die, back in 2013, that's when we started building out our baseball cards. And really what we were trying to do is make sure that people didn't have a bias and that they would remain flexible. And it's not about, you can keep the same view for 20 years as far as I care. You can have an inflationary view for the next 20 years. That's fine. But somewhere within inside your decision-making, you have to be sizing appropriately at different times. The market always has some period where it's focused on inflation. Oil always goes up at some point. And so you can make money, and we have people here that their bias is to run a mean reverting portfolio. They've made money every year they've been here doing that. I think it's eight or nine years in a row. They remain mean reverting at a time when momentum was working. But what they did is they rotated their portfolio extremely actively. So behavioral alpha is what we call it. People don't spend enough time on the decision making. We want independent thinkers. Mike Lundy and I who do the podcast, there's plenty of times where we don't agree at all, but we all come up with our own decisions. We incorporate each of our views as part of the thousand data points that we get from other people, the market, anything. We've got different time horizons. And I want the PMs here, of which we have usually about 20, to remain flexible. And then we try to help them by finding their biases towards some factor or some belief. And then just making sure they're turning over their risk as actively as they possibly can. It's a poker theory. You can win poker without having won too many hands. You can win poker by winning every time you have good cards. There's a variety of different ways, but the key is to continue to adapt. And that's why adapt or die for not only technology, but for markets. You constantly have to evolve and add new things in and move around because markets are dynamic. They are behavioral for sure, but they're adapting all the time too to different environments. And the worst thing you can do as a poker player is if you lose a hand to allow that loss to impact the next hand. Great traders have very short-term memories. 
Lundy and I grew up as traders and I can remember a conversation we had probably a 20 years ago. Yeah, I think it was about 20 years ago. It was right before I left, but it was the one year that we had to pay people down. And because Lundy had more experience of giving people bonuses, which I knew were going to be angry with me, we were talking about how to handle it, what to expect, what to go through. But this concept of short-term memories, we both said, yeah, they're going to be mad tomorrow, but it's like a trader. Hopefully they get in the next day and it's not as big of an issue as it was. They're still going to be paid well. It's just not going to be what they expect. And it was that thing that I always remember that having a short-term memory and living day by day, all these things you hear every athlete now say religiously, got to take it bat by bat, step by step, day by day, every single thing. It's a big part of the markets and I think it's a big part of what we're looking for in individuals and people is the ability of staying in the moment. I've never heard you use that phrase before. Great traders have short-term memories, but I think we're going to do something in the future on that. I love that. All right, we'll do it. Okay. I'll hopefully be able to remember. Uh, <laughs> we're not getting any younger, G3. Exactly. All right. Thank you so much, Jordy. Is that your name, by the way? Is it Jordy? <laughs> <laughs> See ya. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. The information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investments. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.